Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Tonight on the Hinckley Report, as 2024 nears, Utahns weigh in on their confidence in our elections. Party delegates from across the state gear up for their conventions with longstanding and contentious proposals. And as controversial issues once again land in the Supreme Court, Utah's leaders weigh in. Good evening, and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Sam Metz, reporter with the Associated Press, Lindsay Ertz, reporter with KSL News Radio, and Greg Scordis, attorney and political commentator. So glad you're with us tonight. This is gonna be an interesting week in politics, what's happened, what we're going to see this weekend. And I wanna start by what many people are talking about now. It is our elections. We're starting to see candidates come forward. Who are we gonna vote on? And what is connected to that really is, do we have confidence in our system, our voting system and our, our votes being counted? Greg, I wanna start with you for just a moment because something big on the national level with real local implications, Fox News, has settled this week with Dominion Voting Systems uh, and agreed to pay $787 million for claims from Fox News about those voting systems. Talk about that so we can get it to this local level. Well, Jason, it was just on the on the verge of the trial starting. I mean, the jury was selected. They were all there. They were about to do their opening remarks. And as you know, from practicing law, I mean, sometimes cases are literally settled at the courthouse steps, and that's what happened here. A lot of people were really surprised that that Dominion settled because they had asked for 1.5 or 1.6 billion dollars and and some people actually felt that they'd settled kind of low to me 787.5 million is a significant settlement it's a significant amount of money and it shows a lot and I think Fox more importantly didn't want the bad publicity that probably would have come from having people like uh, Rupert Murdoch testify on the stand, um, uh, Tucker Carlson testify on the stand to some things that would certainly be embarrassing to them. And I think to that point, some people wanted to see those people on the stand, right? They wanted uh, Fox News to have to explain themselves for why they made some of these claims, why they reported these claims. And the case was really going to center around, did they report these claims knowing they were false? And that's significant for a media company, right? And as I looked at this settlement come down, I mean, I think it's the second largest settlement in U.S. history. Um, and maybe for this kind of claim. But yeah, yeah, for sorry. Defamation. Yeah. yeah, for a defamation claim, excuse me. Um, but I just went internal with it because I'm a journalist mm -hmm. here locally on a much smaller scale. And I just was like, am I making sure that when I talk to lawmakers, the claims that they make, if I know they're false, what do I do with that? You know, yeah. it just really gave me pause as a journalist to make sure that I'm reporting accurately, fairly, checking my biases at all times. Well, let's get to that for just a second too, because it's unique to have a couple you know, members of the media here. In Fox's statement, Sam, I'm kind of curious about how you look through this lens here when Fox said that this settlement reflects their continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards. They kind of connected their settlement to that. Talk about that through the lens as the, of the media, how you see your responsibilities responsibilities, and particularly when you are reporting on stories like this. 
Well, I think everyone knows that we're in an environment where suspicion or distrust in elections is at a very low level. So I think, as Lindsay said, it's very important to go slow and check claims that are being made by sources and write them and report them fairly and accurately. If they're false, mm -hmm. we call them false at the Associated Press. Uh, when you are interviewing people, and you've done some great reporting too, Sam, when you are doing your reporting, what is your sense of Utahns and how they feel about their votes and about the election process? Do they trust it? So Utah is an interesting state because it's the only red state in the country that has a universal vote-by-mail system. And counties started adopting a vote-by-mail system long before the 2020 election when it became newly politicized in a different way. So with voters I've talked to in Utah across the political spectrum are very confident in voting by mail. And I think yeah. that's reflected in the Hinckley Institute's polling as well. Yeah. When you ask a broad question about trust in elections, people have some suspicions. But when you ask them about their state and local officials, they tend to be more confident. Mm -hmm. there, there is some irony, Sam, in, in the notion that Republicans have, have in terms of the nation, really been concerned about vote uh, mail-in voting and have found that to be problematic. When, as Jason just said, the, one of the reddest states in the country has been using mail-in voting here in Utah for, I think, 20 years and with huge success. Of course, the Republicans win here, so they don't complain about it, but in other states, they're like, well, that's fraught with with the p potential for fraud and and misuse and that type of thing, but it, we haven't had we haven't had problems in Utah. I'm not aware of really any sort of systemic complaints about mail-in voting in Utah ever, until this last session when people are like, well, maybe we should mm -hmm. revisit that. Well, I just think it's a good thing that people trust elections, right, especially here locally. Our state uh, lieutenant governor's office has done a really good job to kind of dispel the messaging that was coming from the top down, led by the same party that the lieutenant governor belongs to, yeah. right? And so they've really tried to get out there and make sure that there's transparency, make sure there's trust in elections. Um, I know that only one county in Utah, Salt Lake County uses Dominion voting systems, and so there wasn't a huge swath of machines here in Utah in order for us to question. So that could be where it didn't totally translate here. Yeah. Um, but there were claims of fraud in Utah, and at every turn, the lieutenant governor's office dispelled those. Mm -hmm. Greg, I want to ask you this question because you brought it up here about where Utahns are, because we have done some polling on this. And I want to ask you about this one in particular, because it does break down by party, as you suggested. Uh, this We started in this, in, this is the 2021 cycle, is when we, when we started asking this question, whether or not there was widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election. 41% of Utahns said yes, 49% said no. But to this is, to your point, if you can just articulate this a bit, among Republicans, 65% of Republicans said yes, 96% of Democrats said no. So it just tells me something that's really sad, Jason, and that is there's still a lot, a lot of people that are buying into what we all are calling the big lie. I mean, it is a lie. It's, it's untrue. I mean, Fox all but acknowledged it, and I thought their settlement letter was kind of goofy. They were like, well, you know, we, we're, we're, we're going to take the high ground here. We're going to settle this case. But a judge found that they lied. A judge found in a summary judgment motion uh, that, that they had lied, that they, that they had gone out of their way to lie, and it was Dominion's job to just prove how much their damages were. So, so there, there 
there wasn't widespread fraud. It just didn't occur. And I don't understand why people are still buying into that narrative. It, it, it's sad, especially anyone in Utah has, shouldn't think mm -hmm. that because we've had such high integrity with, with our voting systems here. Really, we have. And so, I mean, even nationally, everything that was, all these lawsuits that were filed around the country to try to debunk certain states' findings were all thrown out. Mm -hmm. Almost universally, every case was tossed. Mm -hmm. uh, Lindsay, our last thing on this, because I thought it was interesting, sometimes you get reactions from our local elected officials, even some conservative ones. I thought it was interesting, Senator Mike McKell put out a, a tweet almost immediately after saying, There's this is 787 million reasons not to believe everything you see on Fox News. Yeah, he kind of said the quiet part out loud, didn't he, right? <laughs> a lot of Republicans watch Fox News, and um, uh, to Greg's point, I think their settlement letter was really interesting to say, we acknowledge the claims that the judge determined were false, right? Uh -huh. And so uh, the question we'll never really have an answer to because we didn't see this thing go to trial is did they knowingly, um, did they knowingly report these claims knowing they were false? However, with their settlement, you can kind of draw connections there if you right. want to. But uh, yeah, uh, just bringing it here locally, um, some of our, you know, we have a very conservative legislature, we have very conservative members yeah. uh, of our state, and um, clearly this is a channel that they probably subscribe to, and to see one from their own party kind yeah. of questioning it is interesting. It'll be interesting, Jason, to see if anything changes at Fox News, to, to watch how their coverage mm goes from this point forward because their their ratings are to the point where maybe they can afford a 787 billion million dollar yeah. settlement every once in a while because everybody's watching them anyway but they still have other lawsuits coming oh yeah, yeah. They, yeah. they still do uh, before we leave the voting Sam just one final point here there were 36 bills proposed this last legislative session dealing with voting 13 of them passed but one of them in particular was an increased num number of audits of voting around the state just really quickly Talk about that and how that will instill confidence uh, even further in Utahns. So there, since 2020, election bills have always been just a prevalent part of the legislative session. And the ones that tend to be more drastic in nature, like to roll back the vote by mail system, tend to fail in committee um, in the House. And the ones that do pass the Republican supermajority legislature are ones that tend to be focused on transparency and accounting and don't mess with the structural dynamics of the vote by mail system. So audits are one of those. Law lawmakers and state officials like Lieutenant Governor Henderson have been very supportive of audits. But it is important, Jason, to note that there are different kinds of audits. So the Cyber Ninjas forensic audit that we saw in mm -hmm. Arizona, that was widely criticized is not the kind of audit that state officials are proposing to do here in Utah. And in Utah, they've been doing audits since long before 2020. Mm -hmm. so and they it's audit different sections of the election process, right. right? They audit signatures, they audit the voter rolls, they audit, uh, there's other things, they audit, right? So specifically those individual processes and then they audit the whole system. It is interesting in the legislature to see the divides within the Republican Party on these election bills with more moderate center-right Republicans kind of defending some components of the system and some on the other side of the party spectrum mm -hmm. calling it into question. Mm -hmm. so I think the audit will give the, the, the voting more integrity. I think the voters need to see that every once in a while, an aggressive audit to come out and the results of that published so that the voters mm -hmm. can feel like, hey, somebody's looking after this and making sure we're doing it right. Voting, so, oh sorry, go ahead. Well, I wanted to say last year in April, I went to this tour of a ballot center in Provo in Utah County. And 
we got to see the signature verification machines, the ballot sorting machines, and when I talked to voters, they were very confident after seeing this kind of system in place up close. And I know a lot of counties are doing this, but then after asking them questions about their confidence and their local county government system, when you ask some people questions about the broader election, when you ask people broader questions about elections, that's where they mm -hmm. start to be less trustful. Okay. We're going to continue talking about voting with a big event happening this weekend on Saturday. We'll start with you, Lindsay, on this. The Republicans are meeting their state convention. They're at Utah Valley University on Saturday. And we have a couple interesting proposals coming forward from the group. Talk about two of those, because one of them really gets to voting again. Yeah, so one of them will deal again with SB 54, and I say again because delegates have done this in the past. They don't like the bill that requires the dual path to the ballot, right? right? Signatures, so signatures or convention. Signatures or convention. I just operate, but everyone knows what SB 54 is. That's not true. Um, but this dual path to the ballot, we know delegates don't like this. And so a resolution has come forward again to say we will not support candidates, we will only support candidates who go this grassroots delegate route, we will not support other candidates. What's interesting about this is the party already does this. The party already withholds um, the party support, which looks like you know their discounted tax rate for mailing and their different types of uh, voter lists and the data that they have yeah. with the RNC, stuff like that. The party already withholds that for candidates who don't get 60% at convention. So when I talked to the state party chair, the current one until tomorrow, um, Carson Jorgensen about this, even he was like, he called it the definition of insanity because he didn't understand the goal here. We already do this. And so the, the question I have is if this resolution passes, what has to happen is the state party, the central committee has to make it a bylaw of the party, and it's already a bylaw. So will they take that bylaw mm -hmm. further, right, to say we are going to further punish signature gathering candidates? Meanwhile, while all of this is happening, you have count my vote out there this legislative session who vehemently, again, for the mm -hmm. like eighth year in a row, defended the signature path to the ballot and did so with the threat of an initiative as well. They have money behind their cause to say we're going to defend this path at all costs. And so you have the party going in there and kind of saying we still don't like this and you have count my vote saying we're going to defend this at all costs and it'll be interesting to see how far the republican delegates take this if this resolution passes mm -hmm. Go ahead, Greg. isn't there a notion that the the conventions are really the, the people that come to the convention the, the delegates are not necessarily representative of the party i think that there's a feeling that in the democrats the the, the people that show up at the convention are, are pretty far out there and the republicans the same way I'm, I'm not saying it's specific to one or the other and so what comes out of the convention the the candidate that comes out of the 60 percent convention is not necessarily representative of the party because the, the rank and file don't really show up at the convention. So the alternate route, the, the signature route, is, is the way to avoid the problem. The, the problem with that, of course, is that some people don't even participate in the convention. They get their signatures, and they're, they're, they're on the ballot. They're, they're good to go. And so there's some frustration there, too, because then the conventioners are going, well, why are we here? Uh, So-and-so's already got, the, already got yeah. the signatures. They're going to be on the ballot anyway. My vote's not going to matter for much. Mm -hmm. Talking about the candidates that resonate with the people who show up to these conventions for the Republicans and the Democrats, uh, Sam, uh, what, what do we make of uh, who's coming to this one? Uh, we have uh, Mike Lee. And, and Senator Mike Lee and Governor Cox both coming. Senator Romney is not going to be able to come to this one. He says he has some family commitments. 
Yeah, I saw Lindsay had that story yesterday. Great story. We can talk about that in a second, Lindsay. <laughs> um, so Governor DeSantis is the headliner. Senator Romney is not coming, which continues a long-standing pattern of skipping these kind of events. Um, Senator Lee is coming, and one of someone who worked for him is going to become the party chair. So these conventions tend to, as Greg said, for both parties, sway toward the party faithful and less towards the general mm -hmm. primary. And don't electorate. you suppose that's why Romney doesn't go? Because the, the, the far right, the people that are that are there representing that part of the party are not big fans of Mitt Romney. And right if we're going to say the quiet yeah. part out loud, Senator Romney doesn't need the party. He's got enough name ID, he's got enough money to gather signatures, get on the ballot. He everyone in the state knows he's a Republican, even though he pushes back on some of the more conservative, at least um, rhetoric of the party, right? But he still votes conservatively. So I even said that to the party chair. I said, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but Senator Romney doesn't need the party. And he agreed. But he's still got to get through the primary. Yeah, he's still he got He's still got to get his name. If he's on the, the ballot in November, he's, he's a shoe in but what about the ballot in yeah. June? And this is really a good curtain raiser for this battle of the Republican Party question facing Utah. Uh, there are candidates like Governor Spencer Cox and Senator Romney who don't necessarily perform as well at these conventions, and there are other candidates kind of who are more favored by the party activists mm -hmm. who go to them. So we'll be able to see some of those dynamics taking shape this yeah. weekend, I hope. So Greg, can we get to these dynamics for a minute? Because sure. it's going to be very interesting. Uh, Governor DeSantis is going to be headlining this event. Uh, he's going to be introduced by Senator Mike Lee. The convention is going to be uh, run by his Mike Lee state director, uh, Rob Axon. So it's going to be very interesting. Talk about that headliner as it relates to the people who are there, as it relates potentially to the rank-and-file voters in the state of Utah. Well, welcome to politics, Rob Axon. I mean, he's jumping in, yeah. and, and he wanted this position, and I, by all accounts, he's going to be great as party chair. But, and, and, and the DeSantis thing seemed like a no-brainer. I mean, he's very popular among Utah Republicans. He's almost certainly going to be the front-runner once he announces his run for the 2024 presidential election. And, of course, the Republicans have said he's not here to campaign. But the, but the faculty at UVU has issued some flyers and yeah. some statements critical of him coming, which makes me think they, they probably would have criticized anyone. I mean, really, it's, 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 it's a little bit sad, although, I mean, people are entitled to their opinion, but there, there's some people down there at the university they are not happy with Ron DeSantis. And, I mean, he's the governor of Florida. It's not like they, he's some uh, person that's unheard of that has some strange agenda. I mean, he's, he's, like I say, he hasn't announced for president yet, but when he does, he's going to be in the top two. Well, I think the issue was with some of the flyers that they used swastikas they on did. Ron DeSantis' face. Yeah, they call him fascist. Yeah, in order to promote that event and that just rubs some people the wrong way. Um, I know Rob Axon also took issue with the fact that uh, these professors weren't encouraging diversity of thought, right, and kind of chastised them for um, just yeah, the indoctrinating. Irony that that's I think happening is at what a university, said. right? Yeah, that we're not that we're not inviting that dialogue. Yeah, it doesn't really surprise me that people on a college campus oppose a leading potential presidential primary contender for the Republican Party. I do think that it's interesting that this early on, there are 
potential candidates like Governor DeSantis or Mike Pence, who came and spoke at UVU last year, who are coming here. This is a state where LDS voters have historically polled somewhat skeptical of Trump. So I'm wondering if some of these other candidates for 2024, or I should say potential candidates, see an opening here mm -hmm. in Utah, which is a Super Tuesday state. Mm -hmm. Wait, not in Utah. I mean, after the, uh, it, I mean, the, the rank, the, the important Republicans issued a letter. I mean, the, the big names of the Republicans. Yeah party issued a letter basically begging DeSantis to run so he he's in my opinion Sam he's going to do very well in Utah now that's with the with the party leaders but maybe not with the well, the, the well our polling to your to both your point Lindsay you may comment about this in our recent polling Desert News did with the with the Hinckley Institute of Politics 21 percent of the Utahns at that point said they would vote for DeSantis compared to 16 percent for Donald Trump well, and I think to Greg's point, coming from the top down of the Republican mm -hmm. leaders in the yeah. state, that is pushing that message. That message. I even spoke with Governor Spencer Cox yesterday about uh, what his conversations with DeSantis would look like, and he said, "I'm going to encourage him to run for president." So the governor really wants Ron DeSantis to run. Uh, the governor says that he has seen how DeSantis leads on the ground, and what he did with hurricanes, building roads, building bridges. That's where his leadership is important to Cox. I pushed him a little on the fact that Florida. Is having a gas uh, shortage right now, and DeSantis is taking a little bit of pressure for not being in the state, being accused of campaigning, quote unquote, um, while his people in Florida are struggling to find gas. Um, Governor Cox just said that, you know, um, they, that governors have to balance that national obligation with the needs of their local state and governors have to do that all the time. Mm -hmm. So kind of defended him there. Yeah. And Greg, all this leads into these approvals, how people feel about these candidates. That's what we're measuring over time. And before we leave this this uh, convention that's coming here, I want to talk about Senator Lee and Senator Romney very quickly, just how Utahns are viewing them to see if, you know, test Lindsay's assertion Interesting here. Poll. Interesting uh, numbers, uh, uh, really. This is how it broke out. So this is approvals of Senator Mike Lee. So this is just this last month. 47% uh, approval of Mike of Mike Lee from Utahns, 44% disapproval. Let me just break that down for your question. That's 67% approval from Republicans, 93% uh, disapproval from Democrats. I, I want to give you those numbers just to compare and contrast to Senator Romney. 52% approval and the exact same disapproval. And uh, his his approvals are largely Democrats. Sure. So talk about that. Well, I think Democrats and independents have reason to like Romney. He, he stood up. He stood up to the to the Trump wave at the time when there were the, when the impeachment proceedings were going. But it hurt him badly with the Republicans. I mean, there were billboards around this state saying impeachment Romney. I mean, there were people that were upset at him, and that's going to cause him problems, like we've been talking about, not only in his in his own convention in a year, uh, but in a primary because Republicans are are scared of him. They're a little nervous. About about him, but the state as a whole, I mean, he'll do incredibly well if, he, if he's, like I said, if he's on the ballot in November, because even Democrats and independents and, and people who, who aren't necessarily affiliated with anyone are really saying, boy, he's, he's a champion. He's, he's one of those people that can bridge, bridge the, the gaps that we have right now. Let's, let's keep people like Mitt Romney in office. But it's interesting because Romney votes very conservative, right? So he's very conservative in his policies, but yet he's painted and uh, perceived to be much more in line with Democrats. I think uh, Democrats and independents in this state need someone to latch on to. They don't have very many, uh, where we have so much, so many positions in Utah controlled by Republicans. They don't. They don't really have their candidates that they can latch onto, at least in office right now, I should say. Um, and so they need 
someone like Senator Romney to get behind, but in the eyes of Republicans, that paints him more towards the left, when in reality, he does vote very conservative. Mm -hmm. Last comment on this issue. Jason, I think the single-digit difference between Senator Lee and Senator Romney really reflects how the general electorate might be a little bit different than the voters who go to these party conventions, the Republicans in Orem and the Democrats in Cedar City, as Greg was saying. Okay. Uh, I want to get to one final thing uh, on the Supreme Court. And Greg, I want to start with you. Not just a great lawyer, but you also understand the implications of some of these things. First, uh, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas under fire a bit. Uh, while a bit. The, <laughs> maybe explain that. Just, yeah, just explain what, what's happening right there, because that's right. Cause it's, it's getting hotter. And then uh, we'll get to a pretty big decision that they're going to have to get to, they say, tonight, by the night of airing of this show on Friday. So, so Clarence Thomas has, for decades, really been under the radar at the Supreme Court. He doesn't speak a lot. He doesn't, he, nobody can tell you a great opinion he's written. He's, he's, he's sort of out there. But since the new Supreme Court is seen as very, very conservative, they're starting to look at him and some others. And they've done some investigation into his financial dealings. He's dealing with this this Texas billionaire yeah. traveling all over in the mega yacht, the private plane. He's taking advantage of these things, and he's like, well, you know, there was no quid pro quo to this. He's just a friend, and I like being on his yacht every once in a while. Yeah, of course. Now we find out more recently that, in fact, he, uh, uh, Clarence Thomas, was was the was had an ownership in his mother's home, mm -hmm. and that this billionaire bought the home. So so Clarence Thomas actually gained financially from that transaction. That's an absolute reportable issue. In fact, it's something that shouldn't be done in the first place if you're on the Supreme Court. But you at least have to disclose it and make sure that everything's on the up and up. It's happened in I think it was 2014. Nobody knew about it. It was completely under the radar. Now it's suddenly exposed, and Clarence Thomas's response mm -hmm. is, "I'll amend my, uh -huh. <laughs> I'll amend uh -huh. my disclosures." Okay, you know, eight years later, and 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 other things have come out, and I think he's very much under the microscope right now. Mm -hmm. His wife's political dealings, her finances right. are going to be under the microscope, and Clarence Thomas, you know, he he wanted this mm -hmm. national attention. He wanted this, you know, this right wing wave, but I don't know that he expected that he mm -hmm. would be so much the focus of some some really derisiveness. Right. Uh, Justice Thomas spoke last year at the Grand America um, with the Orrin Hatch Foundation, and one of the things he talked about was the potential for political actions, like politicians proposing what he called court packing, to erode trust mm -hmm. in the court. I think it's a really fast news cycle, but the question is how long this story will stick, yeah. and if it will erode trust, I mean, particularly with decisions like the Mifepristone decision, which people are yeah. anticipating today. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's got to be the last comment on this, but it's very interesting timing as we're discussing that. Uh, at the same time, the, the issue tonight that we'll be getting some sort of comment from the court on is the Food and Drug Administration's uh, authority to regulate this Mifepristone, the, uh, uh, this abortion uh, drug. Yeah, so, and so they, they we thought the Supreme Court had given us a deadline that they were going to weigh in as to whether they were, they were going to continue the stay on Wednesday night, and then they said, well, we'll let you know by Friday night. Yeah. So we still don't know what's going to happen, but we have some contradictory rulings out there, yeah. and the Supreme Court's got to weigh in. Okay. But the issue is, what do we do in the meantime? Okay. This is going to be a big story. We'll be watching very closely. Thank you so much for your commentary. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.